everything changed in that moment. The lights went on for the first time in Mongolians over the age of 20, and they swarmed into the church. And for two solid months, we were hit by a tsunami of um, advance of the enemy's kingdom, and it looked like everything was going to be destroyed. And then to have to hack a grave into the frozen soil three days later and kneel down and lay my son. Yeah, there's nothing that can prepare you for that. And I knew that there was people praying for me all over the planet. God brought us through it. He was there with us. We felt the presence of God in a way beyond that we'd ever felt him before. That wasn't the right question. The right questions are, was I called, was I chosen, and did I obey? It didn't really matter what God did with my obedience. That's his business. My business was that, yes, I was called, I was chosen, and I obeyed. You know that only God can pull something like that off. Only God can pull something like that off. Only God. Planning a church in an unreached culture is exciting gospel work. When God's spirit breaks out and people begin coming to faith in Christ in bunches, it's amazing to see him work. This week on VOM Radio, you'll hear about the founding of the church in the nation of Mongolia and the amazing things God did as a vibrant new church was born. But you'll also hear that Satan doesn't give up his territory without a fight, and that fight can strike very close to home, even into a baby's crib. You'll be encouraged and challenged as you hear how God is working in Mongolia and around the world this week on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help right now on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. We have very special guests in our studio today. We have Brian and Louise Hogan. Uh, they are part of YWAM, and they have been involved in church planting uh, in the country of Mongolia. They have also now been involved in training church planters around the world, uh, including some hostile and restricted places, places where Voice of the Martyrs works. Uh, so our works kind of cross over each other. Uh, Brian is also the author of a couple of books. Uh, they have great titles. These will you ones you will remember. Uh, there's one called There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. Uh, which is something you'll need to explain as we go along. Uh, and then there's another one, A to Z of Near-Death Adventures. Uh, Brian and Louise, welcome to Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to me a little bit. Uh, first, uh, the sheep in my bathtub. Tell me what that means. Well, um, that book is really the story of what God did both in our family and in the church movement that we were able to be a part of starting in Outer Mongolia in the early 1990s. And um, so the tagline for it is really um, an American family with no cross-cultural experience uh, plunges into the utter chaos of post-communist Mongolia and uh, incredible things result as God shows up. So um, 
basically the she, the title comes from um, two actual incidents. One's really simple. We had to baptize the new believers in bathtubs. So there were literally spiritual sheep in our bathtub um, entering the kingdom. And that was because of the extreme low temperatures that we were dealing with in Mongolia there and some of the limitations we had. Um, the other thing was kind of funny. Our meat didn't come to us in nice packaged uh, things on styrofoam trays, uh, but it was really, you know, came as whole animal or chunk of animal. So one time I bought a sheep and brought it home and thought, where am I going to butcher this? Uh, most people would do it on the balcony, but we had a first floor apartment. And um, so we ended up uh, butchering it in the bathtub. And when I had finished, I washed the tub down really well. And um, because sheep fat is pure white, I did not realize that I had greased the tub. And so my wife went to take a bath, filled it with hot water, and was sliding all over the place. And uh, I heard her yell from the bathroom, Brian, what's wrong with this tub? And I said, oh, there was a sheep in the bathtub. I'm so sorry. Uh, I was thought I was going to get in trouble. But when she got out, she said that um, her skin had never felt better. And so <laughs> we referred to it as the Mongolian spa treatment. Very nice. Okay. <laughs> The, the, the things they don't tell you in, in missionary training school is uh, you, you just get there and you learn them. They are legion. <laughs> yes, they are. Talk to me a little bit about the work that you did in Mongolia, because I know when you guys got there uh, to the city you were at, there was no church. There was no Christian presence at all. Uh, so you're breaking new ground for the kingdom. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and about how God used that experience. Well, God led our team to a city called Erdenat, which was um, uh, the third largest city in the country of 70,000 people. But there were absolutely no missionaries working there, and there had been no breakthrough yet. Um, so in short-term trips that our partners took up there in the beginning of uh, 1993, 14 teenage girls gave their lives to the Lord. And uh, we began to work with them. Uh, all of the churches in Mongolia in the early 1990s were youth groups. Older people weren't um, committing to faith yet. A lot of it had to do with uh, being really burned by communism, which foreigners had brought and everything, and, and really looking for something that was identifiably and verifiably true. And they just they weren't looking for the next new thing. They were, they were gun shy. And so um, we started working with the young people God gave us. And they grew, rapidly, we formed them into small, simple house churches that met in living rooms. And very rapidly, these girls learned to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, and which is what discipleship is all about. And they began to win their friends to Christ. And these groups grew and multiplied. They had to multiply if we were going to keep them small and simple. And um, so very, very quickly, this church grew. By the first year, we were 120 baptized believers. And... Um, it continued to grow like that, um, rapid kind of exponential growth, um, but really among this one sector of society. And it wasn't until April of 1994, a year and four months after the church had been born, that um, signs and wonders broke out through a visiting short-term team. And that was what the older people had been waiting for, really seeing God show up and make his name great and prove he was who we had been saying he was. It was the one-two punch of hearing good news, but really seeing, oh my gosh, God is here to touch my needs, my neighbor's needs, things that I've never seen touched before adequately by the Tibetan Buddhists, by the shamans, by anybody else. And this penetrated down to the deepest levels of the Mongolian soul. You talked about the people having kind of been burned by communism. Uh, what was their spiritual state 
uh, after 70 years of, of communist oppression? Well, almost every Mongolian was a scientific atheist, uh, self-identified. Saying that, it's important to realize that was just a veneer um, because the communists hadn't touched the deepest levels of the Mongolian soul. So um, we were told right when we arrived, other missionaries had already figured out every one of these Mongolians is an onion. The outer skin is uh, Soviet atheism. Underneath that is um, Tibetan Buddhism, which had only been around since the 1500s, 1600s. So it was younger than Lutheranism in Germany. It's not the national religion. Um, and, but underneath that, underneath a layer of Tibetan Buddhism, was shamanism, going to the witch doctor and getting your children named and cured and all these kind of things. And that wasn't even the core. That was introduced from other Altaic societies. What the core was was um, what we call animism or the worship of inanimate objects. And that was, that was all the way down to the middle. That it described what they, how they would answer the question, what is real? And if um, Jesus' church was going to have any kind of a lasting impact on Mongolians, they didn't need another skin plastered on their onion. They needed a change at that core level. You mentioned that, that signs and wonders came and God really mm-hmm. did some amazing things. Tell us some of those stories, some of the things okay. that God did, because well, I, I think there are some pretty mind-blowing things. We had um, actually two things happen at the same time. God did a a miracle. We'd been calling out, please rescue us from this half a youth group. We had almost all teenage girls at this point. And um, what happened was he led us through a whole series of really questioning and interviewing Mongolians, exit interviews at the Jesus film. He led us to make the very difficult and, and controversial decision to change God's name in Mongolia. A Bible translator had, um, had translated the New Testament. We had that right when we went in, but we didn't know that he had made up a name for God. He had constructed one that no Mongol was familiar with. And so the older people were kept saying, it sounds like science fiction. It's just not true, is it? When they'd see the Jesus film, they'd compare it to Terminator or something like that. They'd go, well, that was a good movie too. And um, we said, no, this one's true. And they'd go, come on. And it turned out this name for God just sounded as strange to the Mongolian ear as calling God the force would sound to you or I. And we, we made the difficult decision that in Erdenet, because we were so far away from all the other missionaries, all the other church plants, we could try something out. And we changed God's name to the Mongolian name for God, Borchan. This is the same uh, word that Genghis Khan would have used when he said to, uh, you know, asked people to send missionaries. Uh, to teach them about God, the one true creator God, but also a little idol sitting on your cupboard. That is a generic term. It means God. And so we decided to use this and explain who Borchan was. And we asked our believers from now on in public po- proclamation, please use Borchan. Don't use this made-up word, Yurtensenitsen. And they began to do that at the exact same week that we made that change, a group of um, believers from a Bible school in Russia showed up and asked if they could minister in the community under our direction. They began to pray for sick people, and signs and wonders broke out. And people were so astounded, and they're saying, who's doing this? That was the major question of the crowds of people to the young Mongolian girl who was translating. And she, out of, out of route memory, she started to say, it's Yurtensen, and she caught herself, and she said, Borchan is doing this. The, the Gansun and Borhan, the one true God, has shown up here in Erdenet, and he's doing this through his son, Borhani Hu Jesus, his son Jesus. And everything changed in that moment. The lights 
went on for the first time in Mongolians over the age of 20, and they swarmed into the church. <laughs> it's almost a situation where the, the missionaries just have to get out of the way and let, let God work. That, that led to some challenges, though. There, there was a great <laughs> outpouring, um, but as you've mentioned, you know, Satan doesn't just sit back when the church is exploding. Uh, there, there comes some, some cost to that, yes. and, and it really affected your family. Yes, it did. We had we had months and months of this uh, outpouring continuing, and it was it was glorious. It was messy. It was frenetic. Uh, we discovered that God is is very secure <laughs> in who He is, and He <laughs> He's not worried if things look like they're out of control or chaotic because His Spirit is controlling things. So that was it. Was this glorious roller coaster ride? But in November. It went all the way through um, the summer and the fall. And in November, um, Louise had our firstborn son, Jedediah, in our apartment. It was the first foreign baby born in Mongolia. But he was our fourth child. We had, we had gone in with three small daughters. Yes. And um, with his birth, all hell broke loose uh, in spiritual warfare, in attack, in um, people walking away from their faith, the church disintegrating, cult groups moving into town, it all started happening. And for two solid months, we were hit by a tsunami of um, advance of the enemy's kingdom, and it looked like everything was going to be destroyed. A friend of mine said throughout history, whenever the kingdom advanced, someone first had to pay a terrible price. And we discovered that during this two months of attack, and uh, we were devastated, and we were thinking of pulling out and everything. It was that bad. It didn't look like the church was even going to survive. We didn't know that that terrible price could even be, be much worse than we could imagine and could hit home so closely. How closely? What happened that, that really brought it into your household? On Christmas Eve, I awoke to Louise's screams from where our baby had been in bed, and she had found that Jedediah, who had been perfectly healthy as we laid him down the night before, had died during the night of sudden infant death syndrome. And it was like the, the attack and the horror uh, took a, a new level in an instant. And I felt like I was in a nightmare that there was no way to shake myself out of. Um, you know, there's, <laughs> it's almost impossible to really describe uh, what it was like, but that day was obviously one of the worst of our entire lives. And we, um, God brought us through it. He was there with us. We felt the presence of God in a way beyond that we'd ever felt him before. But the actual walking through and the suffering that was involved in, in losing a child in a foreign country, in being so far away from family and friends that you literally can't even make a phone call that'll get through, um, to be in a foreign place where even your team members are from other nationalities and are not can't relate on the level of being parents. We were the only parents on the team. Um, you know, so many things like that uh, made it particularly hard to have to lay my son down in a Mongolian hospital morgue that was a building out back designed to let the cold air in because they freeze the bodies over the winter and they only bury in the spring. And to walk into that place of death and see bodies piled so high on every wall broke my heart. And to leave to leave Jedediah's body there. And then to have to hack a grave into the frozen soil three days later and kneel down and lay my son 
Yeah, there's nothing that can prepare you for that. And, you know, I've told people a lot of times, I am really glad that God doesn't tell us our stories before we need to hear them. I had, there's no guarantee that I could have obeyed had I known what was coming. You mentioned that, that in those days God ministered to you. I think, I think our listeners, our first response is going to be, well, I'm getting on a plane. I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm not staying. Uh, but did you, did you have that emotion of, hey, fine, we're leaving? Or, and also, did you ask God, you know, God, we're here working for you. How could you let this happen? Yes, we ask those questions a lot. And um, one thing I had read by uh, Elizabeth Elliot that really helped me was that that wasn't the right question. The right questions are, was I called, was I chosen, and did I obey? It didn't really matter what God did with my obedience. That's his business. My business was that, yes, I was called, I was chosen, and I obeyed, even though it was hard. And there were times when, especially after, you know, you know walking through the grief process was really a struggle, and there were times Ryan hid my passport because he knew I was a flight risk. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> when, um, when we spoke with each other, though, during this, this particular crisis, the, the deepest crisis, it was amazing on two fronts. First, how close God made himself to us in the midst of the deepest grief that, uh, yeah, just almost a grief that was too much to get out of bed, then you'd feel this presence of God. and the, It felt like, like, like I, I often describe it like I was floating on a sea of his grace. I, and I knew that there were people praying for me all over the planet. And later we found out that we would get notes and letters from people. But I just had this sense. I just knew that he was right there with us. And I can honestly say, and this, I don't think it's any credit to us. I think it's where we were with dad at this point. But I don't think we ever seriously for a moment contemplated not finishing what he'd called us to do in Mongolia. What we really wanted to do was to take an immediate um, respite break back to family and friends in the United States. We wanted to go away for about three months, get this grief, let it, let the, the, the horrible part of it get out of us, and we could put our game face back on and come back and complete what he'd called us to do. Even that was not to be. God told us we needed to stay and grieve with the Mongolian church. And I, at first, I couldn't understand this. We were the only missionaries at this point in the country who'd been there for the length of time we had without a break. So if anybody was due for a break, it was the Hogan family. And God told us to stay. And then the other thing I, I couldn't understand was Mongols don't like public display of emotion. And that's pretty much all we had at this point. So it's like, how will this bless your kingdom? I was, I was giving God lessons about Mongolian culture and saying, God, that's not such a great idea, which, you know, looking back on is pretty laughable, me instructing God. But at the time, I just thought, this can't be right. I mean, we have to leave, right, and then come back. And so we stayed, and we cried, and we grieved, and we, and, but we grieved with hope. And, and we, without even feeling like, we needed to communicate anything. When we were talking to Mongolians, it would inevitably come up that we were going to see our son again and that we had that hope and that was a rock in our lives. And um, that was absolutely transformational to them. They'd never even dreamed that it was possible to grieve with hope. And I've had so many Mongolians tell me over the years, in fact, there's a whole chapter in my book called Grieving with Hope because it had uh, an incredible impact 
on the Mongolian church. And they look back to it as one of the most important single events in the planning of the church there. Not just the church in Erdnet, but across the country, this story was repeated, Mongolian to Mongolian to Mongolian. I had one friend that told me, she said, I've seen mothers lose children, and they either go crazy, where you can't even really mm. communicate with them anymore, or they harden their hearts so much. They're mean, nasty people. She said, you didn't do that. There must be something true about your God. Mm. And she's a believer to this day. You're listening to Todd Nettleton on the Voice of the Martyrs radio network. Out of this grief and loss, there was a breakthrough. Yes, uh, there was. Tell us, tell us about that. Well, it was at our son's memorial service, actually, that um, basically a declaration of war got made and the church began to fight back for the first time in two months. And it's not like we hadn't prayed. It's not like we hadn't tried to engage in spiritual warfare. But as a unified response... We were felt like we were just rushing around picking up the pieces or mopping up spills, and we never could even get our heads straight enough to know what to do. It was the Mongols. I, I um, kind of declared war against the enemy at my son's service, and the Mongol elders raced up, grabbed the mic, and made the proper response. They said, we're all stopping eating right now, and we're going to start praying, and we're going to stay together on our faces until this is over. And um, we went into spiritual warfare mode. And really, uh, at 3 a.m., in uh, 3 in the morning, we were gathered all over town in different apartments, and it ended. This, this two months of attack came to a crashing, screeching halt. And we all knew it. We all went home at that point. And um, from the next day on, over the next three, four weeks, Jesus repaired everything that had happened. I mean, we had a church split where 100 people joined a cult, and they all came back together at one moment, weeping and repenting and asking to be restored. You know that only God can pull something like that off. To change a hundred hearts at one time? How do you do that? I don't, I don't even get it. It never happens, you know? And things like that. So, um, so many things. It was all repaired. There were two deaths, and those are still repaired. They're repaired in eternity. And my son's waiting for me. As David said in the verse right before the only verse in the Bible that mentions my son's name, Jedidiah, David says, my son will not come again to where I am, but I will go to where he is. And our hope was based on that hope of the resurrection. That's why we were in Mongolia to begin with, to tell him, I want to tell you about a man who rose from the dead. This is something the Mongolians needed to hear. And the, the fact that we were able to demonstrate our faith in that under the most trying circumstances proved absolutely essential for the Mongols to really get that point. But it, it was a costly demonstration. It was. Uh, hugely costly. Brian, I tell you what, we're almost out of time for this week's program, but would you be available to stay and we'll have you back next week? Oh, I'd love to do that. Thank you, Brian and Louise Hogan, for sharing with us today. I love your excitement about what God did in Mongolia, but also your transparency about what it cost. For listeners, you can connect with Brian and Louise online at cpcoaches.com, cpcoaches.com. And Brian's book with that great title, There's a Sheep in My Bathtub, is available from their website as well as from other booksellers. Brian and Louise will be back next week to finish our conversation. 
I'm going to ask them about the principles that they learned planting the church in Mongolia and how they're now taking those principles to other nations and training church leaders and church planters literally around the world. Have you ever thought about what parts of your church service are specific to North America or to Western culture and ideas, and what parts are drawn directly from the New Testament? I think you'll enjoy hearing Brian and Louise's thoughts on that. We're also going to talk next week about what a Mongolian church service looks like. And I'll give you a hint, it's a lot different from my church and probably from yours too. We've got time for a listener question this week. So here's a question from Michigan about Voice of the Martyrs Action Pack program. Um, hi, this is Ruth from uh, Norton Shores, Michigan. I'm interested in the Action Pack program, and um, I was wondering whether or not it's actually more cost-effective to send $30 and have VOM fill the Action Pack instead of us filling it ourselves and then sending the actual bag to you and have you delivered overseas. I was just curious about that. Anyway, thank you. Hey, Ruth. Thank you for calling from Michigan. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Action Pack program, what the Action Packs are is a specially made plastic bag. We ask our readers and listeners to fill those bags with aid for Christians in need. Uh, these are things like clothing items, maybe a towel, maybe a blanket, uh, maybe a bar of soap. And then you send them to us here in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. We put them in a shipping container and deliver them overseas. Uh, right now, these packs are going to Pakistan, Iraq, and Sudan. If you want to know more about this, you can find it at persecution.com slash action packs, persecution.com slash action packs. Ruth, there's really two ways to answer your question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you both answers. If you want the, the purely financial efficiency answer, then sure, it's more efficient for you to just give money. Uh, we'll transfer it overseas. Our contacts will buy the materials, fill the packs, and get them delivered. Uh, you avoid, obviously, the shipping cost to send your pack to Bartlesville, uh, the shipping cost to get it from here overseas. So uh, purely from an efficiency standpoint, yes, it's more efficient to sponsor a pack. But, and you maybe knew there was a but coming, the Action Pack program is about more than efficiency. It's about more than just getting aid into the hands of Christians in these nations. Action Packs are really a connection point between American Christians and Christians in hostile and restricted nations. When you pack that action pack, we invite you to put a picture of your family inside the bag. So when it gets overseas, that Christian family is going to open it up. They're going to see your picture. They're going to know your faces. They're going to pray for you, just as we hope that you're praying for them. So this is more than just a little bit of help. This is also a reminder, hey, the body of Christ remembers you. We're in this together. That benefit is, extends to American Christians as well, those who are packing the packs. Uh, I think all of us probably mail off checks every month. You know, we pay our water bill, we pay our power bill, and we don't think about those checks ever again. But if, if I go to my closet and take out a sweater, if I go to my bathroom and take a towel to go in the action pack, suddenly it's personal. This is something from my home to your home. And I think that's especially true for children. And we encourage families to pack these packs together. So that's why Voice of the Martyrs set up the project the way we did, uh, in, in the sense that it involves you filling the pack and sending it to us. We want to encourage that sense of connection uh, and that sense of connectedness with our brothers and sisters overseas. 
Ruth, I hope that answers the question. We certainly appreciate those who sponsor the Action Packs. And as I say, there are places we can get money that we can't get shipping containers. So those are sponsored Action Packs that go there. But we also appreciate the people who pack the Action Packs. And we hope that builds that sense of connection in the body of Christ. Thank you for calling, Ruth. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the air, you can call our toll-free comment line 1-800-757-5069, 1-800-757-5069, or you can connect with us online at vomradio.net, vomradio.net, where you can also listen to previous episodes of VOM Radio. That's our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. I hope you'll come back next week and join us on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.